What uh, do you do when life sucks? Because we all know that sometimes life can suck. Yep. Yep. Sometimes it's the little things. We're rushing to get to work and we forget that the carport that we built has poles that hold it up. And our car is damaged and we've got the hassle of dealing with insurance and we feel our stress levels rising. Or sometimes it's when someone we've known for years takes offence at something we said that's not really offensive and reacts badly and it chews you up. Sometimes we're happily playing tennis when we fall over and break a hand and months later it's still not working properly. Sometimes it's the little things that mean that life sucks. Sometimes it's the big stuff that happens suddenly. After working at the same company for 10 years, we find ourselves made redundant due to a restructuring, and at 60, we find that getting work is not easy. We go to the doctor for a routine blood test and come back with a diagnosis of cancer, and we walk out of the surgery in shock. Suddenly, our life is turned upside down. A friend we've known for years and played golf with last week is found dead in the shed, having committed suicide, and you had no idea. Sometimes life sucks. And sometimes it just comes across slowly. The arthritis that was just annoying has got to a point that now everyday tasks are not possible and we have to get a carer in. Our spouse's depression has been getting worse and they're becoming more and more withdrawn, but they refuse to get help. The financial decisions we made a few years ago have now come back to bite us, and suddenly we find we can barely straight by. Sometimes life sucks. Sometimes it happens randomly, unexpectedly, sometimes it's short-term, and sometimes it's ongoing with no end in sight. And when it happens, we find that Selves getting anxious and tearful and depressed and sad and angry. All these emotions arise and they can overwhelm us. Or we just feel dead and numb inside. What do we do to find comfort when life sucks? For some, it's shopping, retail therapy. Don't panic, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Um, For some, it's food and chocolate. An ice cream. For some, the way they deal with the stuff is simply to bury themselves in some project or work or shed. For some, it's booze or porn. For some, it's finding comfort in an online world or in a novel. Where do you turn to when life sucks? What do you do to try and numb the pain or distract yourself from the pain? Most of us have one or more ways that we typically use to try and deal with life when it sucks. The problem with these ways is often they can become addictive. They can set up addictive patterns in our life. And addiction doesn't just relate to uh, drugs or alcohol, but whatever we choose can become an addictive cycle. So there's pain and we find some relief for it in some way through food or shopping or whatever it might be and that gives temporary relief but then that numbing wears off and we feel regret and we say we're not going to do that again 
And depending on what it is, we feel shame as well. But then the pain keeps coming back and it's re-intensified by the shame. And so we go back around in the circle. And one of the things about uh, the addictive cycle is that what we used and found uh, provided relief in the short term uh, initially, we've got to keep increasing in order to get, over time, to get the same amount of relief. It takes more drink, more food, more shopping in order to try to get the same amount of relief. We live in a world that's addicted to distraction because we think, we should better make the pain go away. We shouldn't feel like this. Someone has to be to blame. There has to be some way out of this. And sometimes there is a person to blame and and uh, so we can direct our anger to them. Sometimes the person is ourselves, and so we just feel worse. And often there's no one to blame except God, and so we blame God. This morning I want to begin a series called Finding Hope When Life Sucks. It's six messages from the book of Second Corinthians. It's our New Testament book for the year. I tend to do at least one New Testament book and one Old Testament book. So this year we're doing... Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a Greek city, 80,000 people, highly multicultural, um, wealthy, sort of boomtown. Uh, it's an entertainment center and a sports center. Entertainment center, it's got a 14,000 seat uh, auditorium. Uh, it's got a uh, 3,000 seat concert hall. Uh, it has a sports centre where the Ismanian Games were held. The Ismanian Games were uh, second only to the Olympic Games in terms of uh, sports uh, events. It was a city known for its sexual immorality. It was a city known to focus on material things and to moving up in the world. Status was important. It was a self-made city. People sought religion uh, in order to escape suffering. So there's multiple gods to choose from. Uh, you could choose uh, which one you, you worshipped, but the point was that the gods would help you uh, to get material blessing and to escape pain. So if members of uh, your religion were successful, then obviously your god was more powerful. Uh, people were not interested in moral transformation, they were interested in spiritual experience. Maybe Corinth isn't that dissimilar to our own culture. And Corinth was a problem church plant for Paul um, because the cultural values of Corinth were at loggerheads with his preaching. Uh, He'd written 1 Corinthians and then he'd written the letter in between, which he called the hard letter, where he tried to address some immorality. And uh, now he's writing a third letter in preparation for his visit. And his reputation as an apostle has been ripped apart Uh, False teachers have come in and just destroyed his credibility. And so this is a letter where he reflects on his own suffering and weakness and defends himself against the criticism. Of course, the idea of suffering and weakness uh, in painful times just cut across the culture of Corinth, the culture that said that God would bless you and protect you, culture that says you can be tough and independent, and if you work hard, you will succeed. A culture that is very self-centered. A culture that seeks to entertain and distract and posture. As I said, maybe a culture not that removed from our own. Many churches today are pandering to this by promoting a God who will 
bring health and wealth and rescue from pain. It's a false gospel that leads to enormous disillusionment when the hype doesn't meet the reality. So let's read uh, 2 Corinthians, reading from uh, verse 3 of the first chapter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they're troubled, he will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will share us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we're weighed down with troubles, it's for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We're confident that as you share in our sufferings, you'll also share in the comfort God gives. We think you ought to know, dear uh, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we could never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God, who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he'll rescue us again. We've placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And you're helping us by praying for us. Then many people will, have, uh, will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Uh, we don't know what the trouble was he's talking about in Asia, but I think we can relate to how he felt. Just pull up the next slide. Thanks, Emma. It talks about this trouble we went through. We don't know what it is. It says we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And I'm sure we've all at times felt like that. We feel like, and maybe that's how you feel this morning. You feel like just, I cannot take any more. There are times when life seems to be crushing us and we just can't see any way out. And the, the key thing that Paul keeps uh, emphasizing, there's a sort of a little uh, um, phrase that he keeps repeating. It says uh, that God is the source of all comfort. It says he's the source of all comfort. He comforts us. It's the same comfort God gave us. Uh, he's confident God will share us with his comfort, uh, the comfort God gives. It's this phrase he keeps repeating, that God will comfort us. So this idea of God comforting us, that challenges how we feel and how we, how we see about God, what we, how we understand God. Do, do we see God as a God who deeply cares? I mean, maybe we're blaming God for our problems. You know, God, why did you allow this? God, why didn't you stop? Uh, why didn't you stop that person? Why didn't you stop me? Or maybe we receive that God doesn't see what's happening to us. Uh, maybe it feels that somehow God is, has closed his eyes. And we need to remind ourselves that God sees everything. It says in the scripture that God sees when one sparrow drops to the ground. Did some research this week. They estimate they're not very good at counting, that there's 200 to 400, which is a rather large difference, billion birds in the world, okay, because they're rather hard to count. So there's somewhere between 200 and 400 billion birds in the world, okay. Let's just surmise that they live for an average span of five years. Some live shorter, some live longer. That means that there's 20, this is my maths, all right, there's 25 birds dying every second in the world, okay, Now, if that was us, we'd sort of soon get compassion fatigue 
after a few hours of birds dying, and you know, it's like I don't really care anymore, you know, um, after 25 birds per second are dying. But it says that God sees every sparrow that dies. How much more, it says, does he care about us? We need to remind ourselves that God does see and God cares deeply for our pain. He understands pain and suffering. That's what the cross teaches us, that God is not a remote God. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, to suffer, to have people let him down, to be rejected, to be humiliated. The Bible repeatedly talks of God being like a parent. Now, if you're a parent, you know what it's like when you see your child suffer. You know, you just wish that it could be you instead. Remember when Zach, uh, my son, had to have some operations um, when he was two and then at three. And uh, there was a very painful procedure they had to do prior to the operation. I had to hold him down as he was screaming, uh, as they had to give him this terrible stuff. It's just, I'll never forget that experience, a terrible experience. God, as a parent, knows and feels our pain. See, if we see God as a hostile God, an angry God who is the cause of our pain and who loves to punish, we're unlikely to turn to God for comfort. But Paul says God is the source of every mercy and the God who comforts us. You know, the stuff we turn to for comfort doesn't last very long. It, doesn't, it just brings some short term maybe, but it comes back to bite us. The porn that started out harmless quickly becomes addictive and stuffs up our sex life. The food that's good as a source of comfort means we find ourselves putting on weight. The work doesn't fix the pain. It just pushes it down. The alcohol just wrecks us. The sources of comfort that we seek don't work. Paul says the extreme, comfort that they went, extreme hardship they went through taught them how to rely on God, not themselves. God says that God, uh, Paul says that God is a God who comforts. But, you know, for some reason, God is often the last place we seek comfort. Why is that? Is it because we blame God and are angry at God? Is it because we think we can do it on our own? Or is it because we want instant answers, because we live in this instant society where, you know, I take my quick, rapidly working Panadol and it should work instantly? Maybe is it because we've sat under teaching that says that God will quickly zap away your pain? God only wants good things for you. So, so God should rescue us when life sucks. <coughs> Paul says that God will comfort us so that we can patiently endure. Not that he'll wave a magic wand and make stuff disappear. The source of all true comfort is God. Have we expressed that pain to God? Have we turned to God? Or are we running to our false idols, hoping for comfort? Where do you run to? When you have a bad day, where do you run to when life sucks? How does God comfort us? How does this actually work? How do we experience the comfort of God? I want to suggest two ways that God comforts us. And the first is that God changes our perspective when we seek him. As we read his word, as we worship him, as we turn our attention to him, we gain a sense of perspective again. See, God is still God. He still reigns. He's still on the throne. The world is not falling apart. You know, he is in control and he's not stopped loving me. I love that song we sing, He is good. 
um, king of my heart. Uh, he is good. You know, God has not fallen off his throne. He is good. He's not fallen off. He is good. He's far bigger than the issues I face. The issue is not stuck up on God. He has allowed it into my life. I don't know why, but I choose not to doubt that he is in control. He will not abandon me. I'm a child of God, so I have a future in eternity. What appears to be tragedy and disaster has to be held in perspective of God. And that changes things. We back on? Oh, look at that. Yeah. We are. Someone uh, made an appointment to see me the other day, and um, they were free in their lunchtime, so they came in and saw me, and we chatted away, and because they're interested in the building plans, we are chatting about the building plans, and um, after about half an hour, I said to the person, um, so tell me, um, what do you want to talk about? Because I've noticed this pattern when people come to talk to me, that you, know, you block out an hour for them to talk to you, and... Uh, you sort of, they fluff around the issue and about after three quarters of an hour they finally come out with what, you know, they want to tell you and then you've only got a quarter of an hour left, um, you see. So after about half an hour talking about the building and other stuff, I said, um, well actually, why do you come and want to talk to me? And they said, oh, they said, um, no reason. They said, I just came to uh, tell you, um, to encourage you and to say you're doing a good job. I said, you mean you made an appointment uh, at lunchtime to come and, and spend an hour to tell me that? And they said, yes. I said, nobody does that. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, he said, I just felt God saying, I should come and tell you, you're doing okay. Uh, now, he didn't know, person didn't know, uh, but I had been really struggling um, for various reasons. Uh, life had been a bit tough. Uh, and yet God sent them simply to say that. See, the reality is that we are agents of comfort. God has franchised out the business of comfort to his church. We are to be givers of comfort. Paul actually sees his hardships, this opportunity to receive God's comfort, and so be able to give comfort and encouragement to others. He says things were so bad they had to learn to rely on God, which is true. Often when we're cruising, we rely on our own ability, but when life gets tough, we have to learn to rely totally on him. So, so Paul totally reframes the suffering that he's going through. And he says, actually, the suffering I'm going through actually is going to give me opportunity to encourage you. Instead of saying, life sucks, this is terrible. He says, actually, these tough times will teach me to rely on God totally. And then I'll have the ability to encourage others. Now, fully aware if you're in the middle of a tough time, that's a hard sell. <laughs> that's a hard sell. Uh, but that's how he reframes the suffering that he goes through. Totally different perspective. I mean, I've seen it at work in my own life. You know, I've seen my own struggle with depression, meaning that I've had the ability to minister to others who are depressed. The struggle that Roz and I went through when, with our son, with his disabilities, have meant, you know, we have an ability to empathize with those whose children have a disability. Probably the two toughest things in my life have taught me more than all the good times together. Looking back, I can see God at work in the darkness and the pain. 
as you seek God when life sucks, the promise is he will comfort you. And you in turn will be able to comfort others. Your pain will be given new meaning as you learn to rely on God and as you share what he has given you. We need to confess to God the false gods that we use to seek comfort. They are idols. We need to own the addictive patterns in our life. We need to look and see what and who God brings into our life to comfort. To recognize it's actually God who has brought that person, that event into our life to comfort us and thank him for it. We need to ask God to use all that comes into, his, into our lives for his purposes. The pain, the bad choices, the random tragedies, whatever. To ask God to use those things. And we need to act as agents of comfort. So I close this morning, uh, and before we come to communion, I'm going to ask Lennis uh, Malhop to come to the front. <coughs> 2017, uh, many of you are aware that Kevin and Lennis Malhop experienced something that no one would ever want to walk through. Um, <laughs> one of those awful sort of life sucks moments that suddenly comes across you with no warning. Uh, their oldest son, Todd, who is 29, just about to turn 30, uh, was killed in a car crash in South Canterbury. So, Glennis, thank you for uh, sharing today. Paul talks, uh, Glennis, in this text of, of being crushed and overwhelmed beyond their ability to endure, and they thought they wouldn't live through it. Um, can you relate to that description of, of pain? Okay, where do I hold this? Uh, yep. Is that working? It is. Okay. Uh, those first few minutes after the phone rang and our daughter Kylie broke the news of Todd's accident, there are no words that describe the feelings that come over you. To be honest, in those moments, crushed and overwhelmed don't even come close. So many sensations and emotions flood your entire being and your mind is overloaded with questions. How, why, where, and God, please no, not us. And then you're numb. There's that devastating set of phone calls that need to be made in the next few hours. Then there are the phone calls received over the next few weeks and months, including the undertaker, the police, and the coroner. For me, I was aware of all that was happening around me, but my mind, my body, my entire being could not comprehend that Todd had gone. It was like I was in a bubble looking down on what was playing out in front of me. I looked at Todd's photo taken just three short weeks earlier. He was so handsome, but now his body was so broken that we were unable to see him. I struggle with this daily when I think of that little man that I carried for nine months and then I think of his broken body, it just wrecks me. I get flashbacks of what happened, of what I imagine happened that night of the accident and this strikes me at the most random moments. I never intend for this to happen, it seems out of my control. 
but I'm learning to deflect those horrific thoughts before I spiral too far downwards. Sometimes the pain is so deep, it's like a soul pain that shoots through my entire body. I get drawn to the cemetery, but sometimes I get partway there and then turn the car around and head for home. I'm scared that I'll get there and start crying and not be able to stop. As a family, we still can't bring ourselves to focus on organising a headstone. Currently, a little white cross stands there and it simply reads, Todd Malahop. As the reality sets in, the tears fall easier. In the shower, on my pillow, when we talk about him, when we have family get-togethers, or when I'm just standing at the bench getting the dinner ready. When I drive past the places in Invercargill that Todd worked or where he lived, it hits me all over again. In church, I visualise Todd up here playing the guitar at night church. He just stood over there at the back. And then I see his coffin on that side, under the cross. How can it be? My thoughts go to, Todd, do you even know you died? Do you know how much we miss you? And then there are his clothes, his belongings, his teddy bear, all representing his life. What do we do? I never in my wildest dreams thought I would, but in my way, because of our grief, yeah, I can relate to this passage. Right. Paul also talks about in the midst of that um, terrible pain of experiencing God's comfort. How have you experienced God's comfort? Comfort comes in so many forms and we've certainly experienced this at many levels. Our other three children are such a comfort and a blessing. Luke has a similar quirky sense of humour to Todd. Blake, who still lives at home, laughs like Todd. Our three-year-old grandson, Luca, is the spitting image of Todd at the same age. I love all those things. They are constant and happy reminders, and I thank God for them. Comfort comes from counting the blessings. Todd was happy. He'd just got his dream job. Luke got married just three weeks earlier, so we were all together, and we have wonderful family photos. We have so many happy memories. We had Todd for nearly 30 years. Todd is in heaven. He didn't suffer. One day we will be reunited. Comfort came when after nearly a year I finally managed to walk into the loss and grief centre. Comfort comes from friends. I know when tragedy strikes sometimes it's hard to know what to do. But our family, our extended family, our friends, our church family did come and they did comfort and support and they prayed. Our wonderful neighbours from this church who live just across the road from us. They supported us in so many impractical and loving ways and they prayed. Our home group came to us the moment we called. They overwhelmed us with their support and their practical love and they prayed. There are ladies from this church who catch up with me for a coffee and a chat and they pray. Kevin had amazing support from the Manor group throughout New Zealand and they prayed. His customers support him and they prayed. Do you notice the theme coming through what I'm saying? They prayed. You prayed. Despite the grief, the trauma, the blackness, the disbelief and the heartache that we have experienced and still struggle with, 
there is an even deeper feeling within me, and that is the peace of God that passes all understanding. And I know without a doubt that is because they prayed, you prayed. Those first few moments, first few weeks of blackness and darkness, when I went to bed at night and shut my eyes, the only thing I could do to take away the horror was repeat the name Jesus and repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. That was, and often still is, my prayer. There is a light that shines in the darkness. His name is Jesus. Just a week or two ago, Kevin and I had the privilege of attending the Hillsong Music Conference in Sydney, and we sang so many powerful songs. But I found that happiness and grief walk hand in hand. As I sang and we lifted up our joyful hearts and our praises to God with 30,000 others, the tears just rolled down my cheeks. I couldn't get tired out of my head. He's gone. How is it that we as parents have buried a child? And because we are human, we will struggle with this as long as we are given breath. Bible verses. There are so many, too many to mention here. They have given comfort and hope. And it is the hope in Jesus that has and will continue to get us through this traumatic journey. The hope and the certainty that Todd is in heaven and that we will see him again. This is not the end. I am so thankful for the cross. This is where Jesus shed his blood and the enemy was defeated. This is where our only hope lies and this is what gets me through each day. Death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. This is how the sting of death is taken away. So, Linus, um, Paul also talks about the fact that as God comforted him, so he was able to comfort others. Has that been your experience at all? Comforting others. I didn't want to have to go through something like this to be a comfort to others who find themselves in similar situations. I thought I was a pretty sympathetic sort of a person when it came to that, but the depth of this grief is something else. I think people who have lost a child find themselves drawn to each other, and in this way they comfort one another. Some people are further on this journey than others, but that sure doesn't make it any easier. They may just look at things from a slightly different perspective because they have learnt in their way how to deal with the difficult times when they trip them up once again. In this 15-month journey of ours, I have encountered people who have lost a child since we have lost Todd. People have also introduced me to others who have lost a child. I think that they think I am more qualified to help them with their grief than they are. And while we do have something in common, each loss and grief is different and personal to them. But we can talk and we can share, we can cry together and we can hug and we understand. Sometimes that hug is worth more than a thousand words or just to be simply told, I'm so sorry, or I've been thinking about you, or I'm praying for you. Keep it simple, that's all it takes. This grief journey has certainly taken me way out of my comfort zone, but if what I have said helps or gives comfort to someone else who may be struggling in some area of their life, 
or if by speaking out about Todd, others are impacted by his life and come to know Jesus because of his accident, then this is the reason I'm able to stand here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hebrews 4 talks about the fact that we have a high priest who knows our weakness. We're going to come to communion now. We have a high priest who knows our weaknesses. And this passage says, let us cling to him. Let us never stop trusting him. Maybe this morning you're hanging on by your fingertips and these words are for you. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning, is cling to him and never stop trusting him. Same passage says we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive his mercy. As Jesus came to the Last Supper, he took the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup and said, this drink is a symbol of a new covenant sealed with my blood. As the communion team uh, distribute the elements now, uh, I encourage you to ponder what are the things that you turn to for comfort. Maybe you need to confess them. Maybe there's pain that you need to bring to the God of all comfort. I encourage you to bring that pain into his presence. In your own time, as the bread and drink are distributed, just in your own time, uh, give thanks to him for his mercy and grace.